With their fourth opera, Arthur Sullivan and W.S. Gilbert had a hit on their hands. Audiences and critics completely fell for HMS Pinafore after it had opened in London in 1878. And word about the show soon crossed the Atlantic to America. And indeed, before you could count up your sisters, cousins and your aunts, approximately 150 American companies had quickly mounted unauthorised productions of HMS Pinafore, often taking considerable liberties with Gilbert's text and indeed Sullivan's music, and of course, crucially, not paying any royalties at all to the two men who had basically created the show. So, the Pirates of Penzance are, in effect, copyright pirates, uh, as well as tender-hearted cutthroats from that most sedate of Victorian watering holes, Penzance. While Pinafore was running strongly in London, Gilbert was eager to start on his and Sullivan's next opera, and he began working on a libretto in December 1878. He borrowed his hero Frederick, who you'll remember is apprenticed to the pirates by a deaf nursemaid who mishears pirate for pilot. He borrowed that from an earlier work he had written called Our Island Home. Like Frederick, the hero of our island home, Captain Bang, was mistakenly indentured to a pirate band as a child. And like Frederick, he is never in his life seen as a mature man, at least a woman. Frederick is determined to do his duty when he's freed from his apprenticeship to the pirates on his 21st birthday. And he promptly falls for Mabel, the first pretty woman that he sees. Mabel, the object of Frederick's romantic feelings, is in a long line of very sensible Gilbertian heroines. And her father, the very mod model of a modern major general, his bevy of daughters, not to mention the policemen of Penzance, all of them were effectively invented by Gilbert for the new work. For reasons that we've heard about, it was decided that the premiere of Pirates should be in New York. So in November 1879, Gilbert, Sullivan and their partner Richard Dolly Cart sailed to America with a company of singers to play both Pinafore and the new opera, thus securing its copyright position in the United States. Sullivan was writing the music backwards in a rather curious way for this new work. So before the company embarked for New York, he'd already finished Act Two. However, when they reached New York, the composer found that he'd left all his sketches for Act One behind. And this, of course, is before the days of the internet and fax and all those things. And so he had to reconstruct Act One entirely from memory. Indeed, Gilbert told a correspondent many years later that Sullivan was unable to recall his original setting for the entrance of the women's chorus, Mabel and her friends, so he substituted the chorus climbing over rocky mountains from the earlier opera they'd written together called Thespis. Sullivan, however, was in no doubt about the New York, he new, new work. He wrote to his mother from New York, the libretto is ingenious, clever, wonderfully funny in parts, and sometimes brilliant in dialogue. Beautifully written for music, as is all that Gilbert does. Music is infinitely superior in every way to Pinafore, junior, and more developed of a higher class altogether. I think that in time it will become very popular. And popular it was when it opened in New York on the 31st of December 1879. And so it has remained on both sides of the Atlantic, with, of course, Gilbert and Sullivan happily being able to claim money from the American copyright and indeed from the British copyright because they hastily put together a brief first performance of Pirates just before the New York premiere that took place in Paynton, uh, of all places.
Paris opened in London properly in the 3rd of April, on the 3rd of April 1880 and initially ran for an amazing 363 performances. Well, we've an octet of guests this afternoon to help us buckle on our swashes. The baritone, Benjamin Kahn, who's covering the role of the Pirate King in this production, and Andrew Smith, a member of the music staff here at English National Opera, will be performing for us. And they're going to be joined by four members of the English National Opera Chorus, the tenors, David Douglas and Adam Sullivan, and a pair of basses, uh, Michael Burke and Paul Sheehan. We're also joined by Sarah Hamza, who is costume supervisor for this production of The Pirates of Penzance for English National Opera. But our first guest is the theatre historian Sarah Lenton, an unabashed enthusiast for Gilpin Sullivan. Will you please welcome Sarah Lenton? <laughs> Sarah, where exactly does Pirates come in the kind of catalogue of Gilpin Sullivan's works? Well, it's, uh, um, it's the fifth, uh, if you count Trial by Jury as a one actor. Um, but actually, it's the second, because P Pinafore's the big success and Pirates is the second big success, and the other three were slightly apprentice works. Um, so if you think about Gilbert and Sullivan, you think, oh, yeah, Pirates, the second one. And that's the one where I think they realised what, what their combination was in Pinafore, and they just entered their kingdom. And after that, an unwearied succession of successes until we slightly slip at the last moment with Grand Duke. Do you think that the two of them were more at ease with each other? I mean, it's a notoriously prickly relationship when they were writing Pirates, and that to some extent explains how good it is. Yeah, I mean, Gilbert and Sultan wouldn't likely to go on a, a walking tour together, really. Um, <laughs> but uh, as professionals, they were astonishingly compatible. And of course, as always, um, in that partnership, and indeed most partnerships, the libretto's written first. So it's Gilbert writing these lyrics and Sullivan picking up those meters and, oh yeah, and a tune will just suggest itself to him and, and he runs with it. And then, of course, Sullivan has his own uh, fish to fry because he, he wants to parody things and he's got his own wonderful orchestral gift. But it's, it's this marvelous way that Gilbert kickstarts Sullivan um, in, in, yeah, lovely fresh work, Pirates. Yeah. Um, pirates? as a topic, seem to be a particularly 19th century phenomenon. Oh, yeah. Brigands and pirates. Mm. What is it that the 19th century found in them? Yeah, well, actually, there were a lot of them around. Um, Benjamin Disraeli came across some brigands in Italy, and he said, of course, they're very charming, very, very, very well-mannered. Um, they kidnap you, and you're free if you pay them $16. So his mother, in some anguish, said, what, happen what happens if you, you haven't got $16? Oh, well, then they shoot you. Yeah, uh, but, but otherwise they're utterly charming. And there is this sense that there were some still around, and especially in southern Italy. But the real theatrical pirate, or brigand, or robber, or corsair, comes from the 1780s with Schiller's Die Rauber. And in that piece, and this really is where pirates comes from, um, there's a lot of disaffected young men, um, noblemen understood, who suddenly uh, get completely disenchanted with society and go off as brigands. And they, are, they really do blow up churches and murder people. I mean, they're, they're not amiable villains at all, but they never break their word. And this astonishing mixture of high-minded, noble criminality just took Europe by storm and got slightly debates. Schiller was actually incredibly embarrassed by this, this play as he, as he grew a bit older. But it was too late. It was all over. 
Europe by then. All the great Gothic melodramas, the great pirate dramas, um, the brigand dramas. Byron does one in Le Corsair. They're everywhere. Scott does one. Does he? Walter Scott, yeah. Go on. Uh, and, and virtually everybody has a go at, at yeah. brigands of one kind. Why were they so interested? Well, they're picturesque. Yeah. And in fact, they're all rather based on the southern Italian real ones mm. who wore short little peasant jackets and a sash and a conical hat mm. and pistols stuffed in, in their belt mm. and lots of ribbons. I mean, they look good. And, yeah, it was just exciting. Can one be very grand and say, in a sense, they're a response to what is the kind of key revolution of the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution, which we've all become uh, imprisoned in cities. We all become much more aware of how we ought to behave. There are people watching us. Somehow this represents the kind of carefree, however anarchic, and dishonest and murderous spirit that we have lost. Yes, it it is the beginning of the Romantic movement, but... it. It's pre-industrial, of course, it's 1780s. They were getting away from sentimental drama, where the hero tended to burst into tears at, at, at great crises. Um, and suddenly, we, 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 oh, let's have a, a seascape. Let's have a ship. Um, let's, let's swashbuckle. Is there also a, a personal autobiographical note for Gilbert here? Yes. Um, when he was two, um, Gilbert himself was kidnapped by some agreeable brigands in Naples. He, um, he had a nursemaid, and you're, you're probably going to meet her in Act One, um, who's, who's dim. And these two very charming chaps turned up and said, Mr. Gilbert said, give us the baby. <laughs> oh, fine. Handed him over. Uh, bye. And went home and said, I gave it to the, the nice men. And Gilbert's father said, what? And then a, a note turns up, 25 quid or the kid gets it and uh, of course the the child was returned Gilbert vaguely remembered this happening and he thought it was marvellous because he rode on a horse and they were very nice brigands and he was on a horse with a brigand and he he remembered the politeness of the brigands and the stupidity of his nurse so of course some of that's in the show It's tempting to think what also must have appealed to him looking back at this experience was how conventional morality was turned upside down because that's really the point of Gilbert, isn't it? It stops it every time. It's how you turn everything upside down. He was very good at going to the theatre. I I don't know if you've noticed, uh, for example, if if you see an opera, someone gets a letter on stage and they say, oh, a letter, and they give it to somebody else, read it. Can't anybody read an opera? You know, and it's because otherwise you'll never hear what's in the show. You see, and Gilbert found that very funny. And he'd watch melodramas in London, and you'd think, yeah, they're very high-minded, aren't they? It's, it, it can't be good for business, you know, all that sort of thing. Somebody says in one of his early shows, um, that which is conscientious, you usually find isn't very business-like. And you hear the pirates in this; um, they they won't attack an orphan. And Frederick says, but everybody we, we attacked says they're an orphan. We're, 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 the business is, is going down the, 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 the tubes, you know. And Gilbert found this hilarious. Um, and um, it's really him. I don't think he's worried about Victorian morality so much. He's just interested in the, the dotty way stage morality works. Yeah. How sharp is the satire in, in, in Pirates? I mean, the police, the military through... Uh, the major general. I mean, uh, is, there, is there again a kind of fairly direct look at those bastions of authority in Victorian England? Well, I mean, in the 19th century, Gilbert was thought to be uh, quite, quite a sharp operator. He was an incredibly conservative man, if you actually sort of get used to him. I mean, his, his satire is m- quite mild. Um, he was amused by the civil service exams that suddenly uh, pro- popped up everywhere so, and, and suddenly. Uh, 
people were made officers as a result of examination rather than family influence or, or that sort of thing. And apparently he was, he, he was terribly amused. They had to have a classical education. So when you listen to the Major General's song, he tells you how great his classical education is. When he gets to the third verse, he then indicates he hasn't got a clue about military uh, matters. Uh, but, but that's what a modern Major General is. So that's a bit of satire. Mm. The comic policeman, it was, uh, the force was quite, quite new. Um, the cowardly policeman was not unknown on the streets of London, um, and, but it's also a theatrical thing. So it's the gendarme from Offenbach. It's when danger looms, we're never there, that stuff. He was already a, a character in the pantomime uh, and a fool. Um, so the comic policeman is, is part of the job, but as always with Gilbert and Sullivan, it's done with such affection. Sullivan had a load of policemen in his church choir he was a choir master at St. Michael's Chester Street. And he puts some of those, those policemen he knows in his choir in to the show. So they sing in plain song at one point, and they sing together. And Gilbert, again, found that very funny, the way that choruses all act as one. Um, and, and, and you let us by a song conceal our purposes, and off. Um, that, that sort of thing. So I wouldn't, uh, do you think he's very satirical? Christopher, I don't find Less it. as I get older. Yes. <laughs> and more fun. Yeah. Um, where does Ruth, the hapless nursemaid, uh, who unfortunately is the agent of uh, her hapless child Frederick's uh, misadventure, come from? Um, well, partly from some dark bit of Gilbert's psyche, because he seems to bang on about middle-aged women, and she's 47. I mean, we're, we're talking, you know, pretty pretty long in the tooth here. Um, and so she's mocked for that. And that's something that he keeps producing in his shows. It, it was a Victorian comic device. But actually, a lot of these brigand dramas had... The brigand chief had a wife or a daughter who usually harboured a dark secret which would set up the denouement at the end. They'd suddenly deliver themselves of, of what they'd known all along. And so you've got these female brigands on stage, and they had a particular look. They looked like gypsies. They had a headscarf bangles from their arms, sash, and pistols. There's one particularly marvellous one who manages to shoot 12 men before the show and then suddenly gets conscientious scruples when the 13th turns out to be a handsome tenor. <laughs> um, so again, there's that sort of that prudent morality. And Ruth comes from that. And actually, if anyone's seen Trovatore, um, she's actually Azucena. So she's a very, very theatrical creation. We, we used to um, refer to Gilbert and Sullivan as operetta with perhaps mm. a slightly curled lip. We now, um, and I certainly have this afternoon, talk about opera. I mean, this distinction is really a ludicrous distinction, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, when you see GNS or Offenbach, or, you, know, you think, now is that opera? Because I'm really enjoying this. Um, and it's quite light, yeah, and it's still tuneful and all that stuff. To me, operetta is Viennese. Mm. So if any of the GNS are going to be operetta, it'd be Iolanthe, which has mm. got lots of waltzes in. This seems to me to be comic opera. It's got the patter song in, if you start thinking of El Elisia de More. Mm. Um, it's got the coloratura soprano. Uh, it's got the chorus, which is very much a comic opera feature. A chorus with a character. Um, and that's La Fille de Regiment. Mm. It's got wonderful parodies of Il Trovatore. Mm. And what is it? It's Mabel and the flute have a coloratura moment. Mm. I think that's Elisier de More, isn't it? So all this builds into it, and what you've got is comic opera. And because of 
in amongst those parodies and that fun, there's Sullivan's voice. Wonderful, wonderful orchestral voice that man's got. So, yeah, it's, it's got, it stands by itself. Sarah Lenford, thank you very much. Thank Do you. stay with us. Thank you. We're joined now by the baritone Benjamin Kahn, who is covering the role of the Pirate King in this production. You can see behind me on the screen images from the production you're going to see, as well as the Pirate King's costume, which we will come to later. Um, he's also coming with Andrew Smith, who's a member of the BBC, of the, sorry, of the Music Staff here at English National Opera, and they'll be performing for us together with four members of the English National Opera Chorus. Tenors, David Douglas and Adam Sullivan, and a pair of basses, David Campbell, sorry, Paul Sheehan and Michael Burke. Would you please welcome uh, six members of English National Opera? Yeah. I'm very distressed to see, members of the chorus, that you have little gilded chairs, unlike kind of red stools. <laughs> you know, rather what well. used to be what chaperones at rather grand balls used to sit in the corner. Enough of that. Benjamin, welcome. Um, before uh, you sing for us, let, tell me a bit about uh, who you think the Pirate King, as you create him, is. Who mm. is this man? Um, well, he's obviously the head of the merry band of the Pirates of Penzance. goes without saying, the title Pirate King. Um, but uh, it, within the first few minutes of, this, uh, of the opera, you see you, a lot is revealed about the character of the Pirate King. Um, he's not necessarily the best pirate, we, we learn that um, he certainly isn't able to make piracy pay. He's also very compassionate, and he has a thing about orphans. Um, apparently, both him, um, not, only, not only he himself is an orphan, but all of, the, all of his members, his pirate members on the ship are orphans. And therefore, uh, as, it is, as, as it is revealed, um, anybody, any ship who uh, claims to be uh, orphans, they, they then don't attack. So, of course, anybody who uh, could be threatened by the Pirate King and his band of pirates are all of a sudden, they all of a sudden become orphans. Um, and uh, in addition, they do not, um, it's, it is revealed in the first dialogue between the Pirate King and Frederick that they do not attack any ship larger than theirs. So they make it very easy for themselves not to be uh, thrashed with which they are if if they do get um, if they do encounter somebody uh, a ship larger than, than themselves so um, yeah we learned that in, in in the first few moments of dialogue um, with the pirate king that he's 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 compassionate um, that he's not very good at being a pirate but he's um, you know he's he still leads this this band of pirates uh, through life so you know he can't be all that bad and he's very jovial as well I think how, how do you prepare yourself for the role what kind of things do you do well um, I'm I'm uh, unabashed in saying that I definitely watched all of Pirates of the Caribbean um, <laughs> and used uh, Johnny Depp as somewhat of a loose base for the character um, but um, then of course, uh, in preparing for, for any role, I feel that you can only do so much preparation in the actual characterization of the role until you get into the room with the director, with the other, um, 
with the other players on stage with you. And that's really when the character, be, the character comes to life. So the preparation is sort of twofold, really. There's the vocal preparation, um, uh, which you know we do with the score behind the piano, and then the characterization of the role itself. Um, there's only so much that I feel as a singer I can do with the, with the preparation before, before the real work actually begins in the studio. Does, does Gilbert do quite a lot of the work for you in the way that he constructs? His, his verses. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, both Gilbert and Sullivan as a team. Um, uh, Gilbert's obviously written word, and then and then Sullivan putting it putting it to to score um, uh, becomes uh, something that then as a singer, um, I think you guys would all agree um, because it's a it's a very unique style um, that um, is really quite it's quite fun to sing, and I think that is has a lot to do with Gilbert. Actually. And and what are you going to sing for us with your with your support uh, <laughs> vocalists? <laughs> My merry band of orphans. Um, <laughs> I am going to sing uh, the Pyre King's aria, um, which uh, is the first aria that you hear in um, in the opera, um, where he is declaiming his uh, his passion for being a pyre king that he could think of nothing else in life that he would rather do than be a pirate and be a pirate, not, not just a pirate, but a pirate king. So Great. let's hear the pirate king. Great. Far to live and die Under the brave black flag I fly Then play a sanctimonious part With a pirate head and a pirate heart Away to the cheating world go you Where pirates all are well to do But I'll be true to the song I sing And live and die a pirate king For I am a pirate king And it is, it is a glorious thing To be a pirate king For I am a pirate king and it is, it is a glorious thing to be a pirate king. It is for the pirate king, for the pirate king. When I sally forth to seek my prey, I help myself in a royal way. I sink a few more ships, it's true, than a well-bred monarch ought to do. But many a king on a first-class throne, if he wants to call his crown his own, must manage somehow to get through more dirty work than ever I do. For I am a pirate king, and it is, it is a glorious thing to be a pirate king. For I am a pirate king, and it is, it is a glorious thing to be a pirate king. It is for the pirate king, for the pirate. 
Thank you very much, Benjamin Khan, Andrew Smith, and indeed our four members of the chorus, David Douglas, Adam Sullivan, uh, Paul Sheehan, and Michael Burke. Now, members of the chorus, at pre-performance talks, you have to talk as well as sing for your supper. Uh, so, some questions. There's a portable microphone there that you might want to take out of its sheath uh, and pass around. Um, what, for all of you, and anyone can answer this question, what are the challenges for the chorus in Pirates of Penzance? Don't be English and bashful. I think there are several challenges, really. I mean, the joy of being the bass section is that we have to play two very different strong characters in the piece, whereas um, the tenors remain pirates throughout. The gentlemen suddenly have to turn to being on the opposite side of the coin, and we're... We played policeman in the second half. Not only does it mean now that, now that we've had to shave our beards off for uh, Rigoletto, now we have to have two beard changes. Um, <laughs> or should I say four in a double show day. Um, so that there, are, there are several issues, really, I think. Yeah. Um, yes, certainly. Um, uh, challenges in the, in the piece itself. We had uh, an interesting time with Mike Lee, the, uh, the original director. Um, we spent a, a couple of sessions, as you might expect with him, sort of exploring what it is to be a pirate. We all came up with names for ourselves and backstories, and then similarly we did exactly the same for the policeman. Was that um, unusual? I mean, is that something that Mike Lee would specifically have done with the chorus? Uh, I, I, I suppose it, on the whole it is unusual, yes. Uh, coming from a, a, um, a filmatic, cinematic background, I suppose uh, there's a lot more, and a lot of his work is um, uh, uh, improvised work, so it's, it's, it's actors who have researched their own characters and will bring all that uh, to the work, and, which makes his films so wonderful and so realistic and so lifelike. Um, it is interesting work for us to do. Um, opera directors vary. What, what do you do with a, with a chorus who are all apparently singing the same thing and of the same mind, all 20, 40 of us? Um, people deal, directors deal with it with a, a varying degree of success. The better ones, yes, will give you individual characters and will, will let you develop little stories and little plot lines amongst yourselves and, and create a very credible and believable community. Um, so it was um, to actually have the chance to do the workshops is, is not something we, we always get the chance to do. So that was interesting. Um, when it actually came to it, as you say, we, as Sarah, I think, said earlier, you become this, this, this group of pirates, this group of policemen. So actually, in the end, a lot of the individual, uh, individuality disappears, especially with the policemen. They are, they are very much regimented. They are very much, they all sing together. They all sing, in, as you say, in plain song together. So although that's there in the back of your mind, what you actually see is, is, is a, a group of homogenised beings. But pass the mic on. And how free uh, did, 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 are you uh, in this production, and maybe any production, to improvise? We've talked about telling yourself a backstory, telling us your, and then about how you all sing together. But are you allowed to take liberties at all? Well, um, yeah, for me, actually, I, I came into this production as the revival, so I didn't do the first time round. Um, and also it was sort of quite a, a quick quick turnaround to get the show uh, off the ground again. And having not been involved in it the first time, uh, for me it felt a lot like improvising the whole way through because <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, everybody sort of knew what, was, what, what they, they, they did last time, so they, were sort of, they knew the show really well. So I found myself within the first couple of um, stage production rehearsals just sort of going with the flow and almost really not knowing what's going on but i found it so freeing it was so freeing and so fun to be involved in it and i actually think that this type of production 
it leads itself to being able to actually do that because you can just develop your own character, you can be free and actually you can have a bit of fun with it as well rather than being really serious all the time. There is a lot of um, like jokes going on and, and the, the, the lead characters do things differently every, every time so really nothing's really ever set, set in stone so it's been really interesting for me to come in and sort of have to do that as a quick uh, pro process rather than having had loads of like workshop had, time. Had you sung in the original production? Uh, no, I hadn't. I, I'm new to. Uh, thank you. I, I, I'm new to this production as well, and uh, I, I was amazed by what fun and what a freeing process, as you say, it can be to have fun. Have you invented a character for yourself? As well, a I'd, I'd like to think so. Yes. <laughs> tell, tell us. Tell us what kind of pirate you are <laughs> and what your name is, pirate. Oh well, my well, I, my name as a pirate, I think, is Joshua, and uh, and yes, so. I would like to think I'm a very jolly pirate and I'm incredibly simple-minded, but I quite like a dance. Um, <laughs> but more than that, I enjoy a good jug of grog. Um, yes. Notice the word jug, gentlemen. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes, much bigger than a cup. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Listen, thank all of you very much, Ian. Thank you for doing this on a day when you're about to perform not once but twice. We're, we're hugely grateful. Thank you very much, indeed, and, of course, to uh, our other two. Um, our last guest uh, is... Sarah Hamza, who is costume supervisor for the production of Paris Events here at English National Opera. Will you welcome uh, Sarah Hamza? Sarah, tell me, what exactly does the costume supervisor do on the production here at the Coliseum? For a revival production, um, we usually have all of the costumes come in and we have to assess who the current cast are, uh, gain access to those measurements, make sure that we have costumes for those uh, who are new to the production and those who were existing in the previous production. And if we don't have costumes for those who are new, then we have to make new costumes, referring back to the Bible and the original fabrics. How easy is that? To, to, to go back to what the original design was in order to make new costumes for new characters or new singers? Uh, fortunately, this production was new in 2015, so a lot of the existing fabrics were still available in shops. Um, I have worked on productions which were 10 years old and we've had to rehash different fabrics together in order to make a similar outfit or a similar look to what we need to the current production today. And do you have the original drawings and do you work from them or do you work from the costume that won't fit the new character? Which, which, what is your template? Uh, it's a bit of both. So we also have um, original costumes, but then we do have the, the designs that you can see on the screen behind you. Um, and we refer back to the original designs for shapes that we send on to makers when making new costumes. Um, and then we refer back to the original costumes for fabrics um, and for specific date breaking down and the finishing of uh, costumes, you can see the, the Pirate King costume behind you has, have, has had several processes applied to it, um, which we'll probably discuss a bit later. Yeah, we'll come back to that. Um, do the designers of the costumes come in during a revival period? Um, Alison, unfortunately, didn't come back to this for the revival, but 
we had been keeping in contact uh, over email and I'd be sending her uh, fitting photos for anyone who was new to the production. So I sent her photos of Adam and um, David um, and she was very happy with how they looked. <laughs> Good so for Joshua. Nice <laughs> and, and, and I often wonder, um, you look at costume designs quickly switched in, switched in two dimensions, how practical are good designers in terms of understanding how to turn something that is in two dimensions into a third dimension to be worn? Um, Alison was very practical in um, making her costumes. Um, we had her designs almost a year in advance, which was quite unheard of. Um, so we were really well prepared and uh, in the process of having those designs, we then had a, a sit down with all of the makers um, and she'd chosen specific makers for specific tasks in the things that she wanted to create. So a lot of the tailors who were recruited for um, the pirate costumes, um, she would ask for their feedback in, into certain historical features or into any of the specific um, creative processes. She, she loves getting um, a two-way um, discussion into how things should be created. What's the greatest challenge you've ever faced? Um, I think on this production, as it's a revival, um, we only had a couple of days for the rehearsal period. Um, and being able to see all of the costumes on all of the performers and then making any of those changes quickly enough to then see them again on stage is probably one of the biggest challenges for a supervisor. Let, let's turn to what you brought to show. <coughs> Tell me a bit about this costume, which looks immensely elaborate. So this is the uh, Pirate King costume, um, and you are all very welcome to come over and have a look at this later in detail, and even um, lift the Pirate King coat, um, because it's extremely heavy. Um, that's almost 16 metres of fabric in that coat, eight metres in the, in the top fabric of moleskin, and then another eight metres for the lining, plus all of the um, additions that you see on top, all of the braid, all of the buttons, um, the epaulettes, um, and all of this started by like a very dusty pink moleskin fabric that then got over-dyed to bring the tone down. Alison was very keen on, on all of her colours and had a very acute eye for everything that she wanted to see together because she was also the set designer. Um, and it then got sprayed into with a, the orange luminous spray that you can sort of see just to give it that more worn, broken down feeling um, the gold braid then got tinted to give that a tarnished look. Um, and then we come on to the kilt. Um, I was which... going to say skirt, but it really <laughs> is a kilt. It's not strictly a, a historical kilt, but we, we, prefer it, we refer to it as a kilt as opposed to a skirt. Um, and that was a, a three-step process as well in, in getting the linen to our breakdown department who uh, printed the stripes onto the fabric and then it got sent to a pleaters to have the pleating permanently set and then sent to our tailor to be made into a kilt and then back to us. It looks to me as if the easiest bits are the top, the striped pirate's <laughs> jersey and, and the tights. Is that, is that the case or were they just as difficult as all the rest? Uh, they also have a process as well. We had to um, uh, sample those fabrics for the stripes um, so when we were working on this production, there was myself and a, another buyer, and we went out and sourced several different jersey stripes, um, which is what we would do for, for the whole production, for every single character, um, and for all of the characters who were having made items, all of those fabrics 
would have to be sourced, chosen by Ali. We would have to go back and buy those chosen fabrics. Um, she liked this stripe, but she liked the reverse. Um, so then we had that made into a T-shirt, and then that again gets dyed and broken down. Um, the jacket is very nicely covering some holes that are in the shoulders. Um, and then the same with the, the long johns underneath. Um, they are actually a pair of very, very nice cream long johns, which we've then trashed in a, <laughs> a bath of blue dye and then broken those down as well. So, um, yes, yeah, a very worn look. And, and in a way, what it is, is a take on the traditional costume for the Pirate King. Anybody who remembers back to the 1950s will see more than just vestigially what you saw when the Doily Cart Company did this. Yes, it, it's, it's an iconic look down from the, the boots to the hat. Mm. Um, and then there's also a belt that you'll see on, in the production. Um, and it, the whole idea about the pirates as well as, as their individual um, characters was that they all found their clothing. So they were all items, but then they, they managed to piece these things together to make their own look and for all of them to have their own individual style as well. Benjamin, the proof of the pudding, of course, is in the eating. What's it like to wear this costume mm. and sing the role? Yeah, um, this the sheer weight of the yeah, jacket. I'm glad you asked that question, actually. Um, so the, the weight of the, the jacket itself um, really helps um, bring the character to life, to inhabit the character. Um, the whole costume does, the boots and how they feel. And also, um, Sarah mentioned a really interesting element of the costume which isn't here, which is the belt, which has a very heavy sword on it. And that sitting on the waist, mm. again, helps the actor, the singing actor, to really feel, uh, feel the weight of the character and to get into the, so the weight of the jacket and the weight of that sword. Um, especially those two things um, I found to be extremely useful in helping to characterize. When, when the jacket and the sword arrived in the studio in rehearsals, that's when, that's when I felt um, the character come to life. You, you raise a very interesting point there because the designer has to be conscious of how you have to sing. Now you're oh, yeah. putting a great big sword belt around your diaphragm, mm -hmm. it's got to hang below. And, and I suppose that's what you always look for as a singer in a designer, someone who understands what you've got to do when they put the costume on. Yeah, so when we go into a costume fitting, there are certain things as a singer that you look for to make sure that you can actually sing. You can, I mean, you have to be able to breathe in here, you have to be able to move enough. Um, women obviously find it very difficult to wear corsets, so at least they have to have enough breathing room, and that all takes place. Uh, you could come in a bit more, I'm sure, um, in the actual fitting um, of the costume just to make sure that you can actually do the thing on is that, stage. Sarah, is, is that a key element in joining the fitting process, to make certain that the singer who's going to inhabit this costume can always sing? Um, and not just singing, but also doing their actions on stage. So when we had the, the ladies in their fitting, um, you'll see a lot of them raising their arms. And so we asked them when they were wearing their dresses in the fitting, can you do the actions that you do on stage? Um, they all have quite a complicated process uh, behind in their costume as well, where they have a, a bodice, a skirt, a petticoat, a bustle, stockings, and there's a lot of action involved in their costumes on stage as well. So they would often uh, start rolling on the floor to see if the bustle would get in the way and if it was too small or too big um, and if the, all of the weight of the waistbands was uh, hitting into a certain point in their stomach then we would have to adjust those. Um, so as well as checking if they can sing it, it's about their actions as well. 
Sarah, thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a little time in hand. Um, if any of you would like to ask any of our uh, octet of guests questions about this show, do please, as a Roby Mike, put your hand up and I'll catch, I'll catch my eye. Who would like to ask a question? It occurs to me that in producing the dresses, you have a much more difficult job than, say, the people who are producing the sets, because the set is only seen from the front. But you have to be aware that everybody is going to spin round and do these ridiculous things that opera singers do. So it must be a, you know, a more complicated thing than putting the set together. I think we would all always individually say that our job is the hardest job in the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm sure that they have just as difficult a task. Another question. I'm just intrigued in a revival production with some new cast members, whether any of costumes get reassigned to better fit for, you know, particularly within the chorus. Uh, yes. Um, so for this production, a lot of the chorus uh, did it originally. So I was able to put those members back into their original costume. Um, even though it's a co-production and had been altered, uh, we could alter them back to the original size. Um, one or two um, were new to the production. So for example, with the ladies' chorus, um, one of the new ladies, I was able to assign an old costume and the other ladies' chorus, I was able to make a new costume. Um, so there's a balance in uh, my role in looking at what we have available as a budget and what we have available in our costumes um, to make sure that I can allocate to all of them equally. We've time for one last question. Yes. Uh, the uh, role of Mike Lee, uh, maybe you could elaborate on that. Uh, the role of? Mike Lee. The right. director. Um, does anyone want to talk about Mike Lee? I'm, it better be me. Um, <laughs> since I interviewed him. Did he um, test, did he yeah. Um, the first thing to say is, Sarah reminds me, if you've seen Mike Lee's wonderful film about Gilbert and Sullivan, Topsy Turvy, you get a fairly good idea of two things. One, that he is passionately um, interested in Gilbert and Sullivan. I suspect because of its very Englishness, something that preoccupies him. Um, he told me when he came here uh, that he never thought in his life that he would ever direct an opera. Uh, the way he'd worked in the theatre, he didn't think would work uh, with an opera company, um, but that he'd had this extraordinarily pleasant surprise that it did. Um, he also said this, that pirates wouldn't have been his first choice, but he was very glad someone had made the choice and persuaded him. Um, so I think what he brings to it is very much, as, as we've hinted, the cineast side. You'll see the way in which the set is constructed, the way in which your eye is directed. This is a filmmaker working on the stage with another form opera. And, and the combination of those two gives, for me at least, um, a very special understanding uh, uh, of the piece itself and an admiration for, for what someone who comes from outside the opera world can actually bring. So I think it's very distinctive, as you'll see from the very beginning. Uh, uh, you, you've never seen uh, a pirates quite like this, though all the things you want to see will eventually be there. Sorry, a complicated answer. Um, all that remains for me is to say thanks to our eight guests for being with us this afternoon. Thank you all very much indeed.